0: At PepsiCo Design and Innovation, where she is leading design thinking adoption throughout the organization. She is also a well-known speaker on developing radically human creative culture. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Hey, I'm glad I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. So let's start off with just a little bit about how you got your start. How did you end up getting into this world of design and facilitation?
1: Yeah. Back in forever ago, I was a designer and what is now called user experience long enough ago that we call it different things. <laughs> and one of the, I'll just go straight, it was a pain point. Collaboration was a huge pain point. And I realized that the quality of our outputs was directly related to the quality of our creative relationships. So. Um, And I, so I wanted to know how that worked. And I just started down kind of pursuing that, like how, with that question, like how can we make um, what I sometimes called start users? Like what would that environment need to look like in order to best serve our end users? And I just kept going more and more down into that uh, world. And I discovered uh, participatory design uh, and, and of course like design thinking, which is all in that same family. I just got really excited about how do we design with people, not at or for them. Um, how do we really capture all of the different kinds of knowledge that people have? And, and I just nerded out over it. So I, I, mean, I think it, there's, there's so much in there and you kind of keep peeling away things. It starts to get into emotional dynamics. So I, I kind of moved more and more into that. And I started a company called Radically Human which was specifically about how do we create these teams and doing consultant work around that and training facilitators. And as part of that, I just started looking at all other kinds of facilitation practices outside of the world of design. Um, One that I love that I got certified in is called Organizational Relationship Systems Coaching. And it's all about how you work with teams, um, not as a collection of individuals, but as a a team, as an organism, essentially. And that just completely changed the way that I facilitate and work with teams. It becomes like it becomes about how do you create an environment? How do you tap into all and pull all of the different knowledge together? So that's kind of the long journey. And I've been working in the enterprise for a while, I was at IBM and now PepsiCo. And it just kind of gets bigger and bigger. How do we create creative environments? How do we make creative cultures that bring all that to life and, and enable that? And it's just bigger and bigger problems and gnarlier problems. I would say they get more and more complex, but that's, that's
0: the basic Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious, is, is there a story behind that first moment when you realized that it was all about collaboration?
1: Yeah, it was actually, I was, I was on this small team. There were three of us and we worked on a project together and it had an amazing outcome, this was in an, an agency. So we had a client and it was just like, we were so proud of the work. And it was just, it was like just a fantastic project. And then we, same team, same three from our agency. We worked on another project and it was a huge disaster. And I was like, okay, so it's not the three of us. Our dynamic is we're still good. What changed? And it was like a person changed. And, but that started me asking the question of like, what is it that changed is, you know? And so that was like, okay, so you add somebody else in and our relationship with them is just somehow different. So it was, it was like literally that, oh, okay, now I've got to start figuring out what just happened. And that that was really the moment that started me, <laughs> started me on that.
0: You know, it, this sounds eerily familiar because I've found this tendency in myself when it's like, sure, I love the work and the outputs and the things that we're doing, but I always found myself thinking a lot about how we did the work and how we interacted mm-hmm. and who showed up when and in what ways and who said what <laughs> it's like, yep. that's the stuff I find that I'm can be, get very deeply analytical about. And it sounds like you have similar pattern.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely a pattern seeker. And I, I think one of the things that there's a framework, it's a Welsh word. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called the Canevan framework mm-hmm. and it comes, I can't remember his name, but, um, Snowden. Snowden, thank you. I was like, I should remember that Snowden, right? Um, not of the Edward variety. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> the,
1: but what I loved about that was that it helped me kind of understand pattern seeking in a different way. And so, in the beginning, what I was trying to do was box it up. can if I can find if-then statements. If this happens, right. then this happens. That there's some magic formula somewhere that's gonna I'm gonna really open it all up. And when he talks about simple versus complex systems or simple simple complicated complex and chaotic yeah. that i realize that every human problem is a complex system and so what he would say to that is that complex systems are not knowable in advance you can never put them into boxes because they're always dynamic they're always changing so something will start to work but something else will actually take over or you'll something works and it causes a whole chain reaction of something else and you can't really control it all you can do is continuously reflect on it and then make another kind of move and then reflect on it and you can only really know it in retrospect and that kind of freed it up like i don't have to make a taxonomy of this stuff or a hierarchy because it's impossible (laughs) so now okay now i'm just working with the with the system that's there
0: I remember when I first learned about Kenevan and it was one of those moments where like, whoa, someone just explained all this stuff that I've been thinking, but haven't been able to like articulate. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, but, and, and much deeper than, than I was able to unravel. And, and it was, it was almost this like moment of peace where it was like, oh wow, now mm-hmm. I can just like, let it be <laughs> like, yeah. and, and do this stuff. And we actually had one of his understudies, Daniel Walsh, speak at our design sprint meetup. And he was, he was explaining how the phenomenons of complexity explain why design sprints work. Cause design sprints were created by practitioners. It's always fascinating to me when academics can then come back and explain like, Oh, here's, here's why this stuff worked. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like they dreamed the stuff up in a lab to like follow some like, you know, scientific like viewpoint or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really funny because, you know, he really summarized it as the design sprint as a probe. And if you're yeah. in a complex environment, you need probes to understand the environment, to know how to act.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a quote, I don't know if I can pull it back together, but I, I was in this uh, really interesting session this morning. I do work at PepsiCo, but I'm one of the, our core things around sustainability. And mm-hmm. so there's all these really cool initiatives, things like reusable plastics and stuff, but specifically there's a new thing it's called positive agriculture. It's a big initiative now around sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, which is, it's no, I know that's not part of this topic, but the point about that is it's a very complex system that there is no like such thing as basically as a single kind of farmer. Mm -hmm. And land is different, climate's different, all over the world, like, and culture is different. So this is like, how do you transform right now? It's like, I think the target is like 7 million acres of traditional farmland that is like terrible for the climate. How do you transform that um, Mm. into this like rich soil that is pulling, you know, it's like, there's a, there's tons of benefits, but the, but the guy's quote was something along the lines of don't try to figure out where you're going. If you don't know where you're going, just do it. Otherwise you'll go crazy. (laughs) Uh, He said, do lolly. He was in, he was English. He said, otherwise you'll go do lolly. So just go do it. I thought that is right. You don't always know. So a probe, to your point around design sprints, that was my long walk to design back to what you're saying. But uh, as a probe, I think that's the only way that you can deal with these massive problems. And even when you're at the, whether you're at the like massive world climate change challenge, or you're dealing with uh, an exploring like a new way to do a product, or an, even a new interaction, which you don't you don't know what it is first. And I think the folly of you know, we're going to, we already, you know, you have to know what the outcome is and we got to just target it and get us there.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the hallmark differences between complex and complicated, right? It's like, if it's complicated, sure, it's going to be hard. It's going to require a lot of experts and a lot of research, but there is a seeable, knowable outcome and we can just get after it. And I think Definitely if people are, are trying to solve complex problems with complicated approaches, it's not going well.
1: <laughs> I love that. That was my, there's a, I know we might be beating a dead horse here, but I love, there was a metaphor that I heard once. It was about cloud problems and clock problems. It's essentially the same thing. It's like you can pull a clock apart and you can put it back together and it's knowable by the pieces, but a clouds are always changing. They're always different. There's, so you can't know a cloud. You can understand maybe weather patterns. You can, you know, observe things, but you're never gonna know, know a cloud. And I thought, well, that's- is a mo- That's really that's a mo- great. Mo- you know, the, the quote was most people treat, are working with cloud problems, but they treat them like clock problems. And that's the- fun Yeah, part.
0: that's really good. I like that. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, I think it's a little more approachable than my go-to example was. has always been, a jumbo jet is complicated. Mm-hmm. mayonnaise is complex yeah <laughs> and yes. that, that really trips people because <laughs> they're like wait a second but you can't unmake a mayonnaise
1: that's <laughs> it's true you can't unmake it and
0: <laughs> but if you leave it on the counter it won't be the same tomorrow as it is today
1: <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the people around you won't either <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: so I want to I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about something that came up in our pre-show chat around this notion of you know, the one and done workshop and how this work is really about more than that, right? It's not about this flash in the pan or, which is a real risk in this. It's an occupational hazard because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, not another workshop. And, you know, you and I both know that if we're intentional about this stuff, we can get much better, more long-term impacts. And you shared some thinking that you've been doing around collaborative journeys. Mm -hmm. And I, I found it really intriguing. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, I, I think I like, the, I like the term occupational hazard, um, <laughs> that there are a lot of people have a lot of poor workshop experiences. And one of the hallmarks of that is that we got together, we got a lot of work done, or we had a great time and we felt really energized and we left and nothing happened. Mm. And that's usually that's what the objection is. Then why should I go back and do that if there's no there's nothing comes from it? Um, and then like at its worst, then it becomes, well, let's take the design thinking example. There's others, obviously other methodologies, but, design thinking is a workshop, it's a workshop with post-it notes. And at the end of it, you leave and again, nothing happens. So design think, ergo design thinking (laughs) is, is a BS process. And it's like, well, no, because you, you misunderstood what it is and how you use it. So. When I think of collaboration journeys, whatever methodologies that you're using, it's really about thinking of, of a workshop as a touch point in a, in a journey I think, you know, around probes or around creative problem solving. And so workshops have a very specific function in that journey, which is let's, let's actually like tackle a few things with enough people in the room in a way that we can focus Without being disturbed for a longer length of time, but really, there's all these other touch points all the way through. So it might be people working asynchronously on something, and you know the tools that allow you to you know chat or leave notes for each other. That's also part of the collaboration journey. And there's there's you know other things where it might be the you know how we critique something, or it could be how we work together in a, in a short meeting. But all of those things is what we're working towards is. Where is it we're trying to go? And what I like to do is start with the, I like to start with the end and work backwards. So I even design working sessions that way. So one of the first questions that I ask, that I ask people that I'm either facilitating workshop or or creating this is um, at the end of this session, when everybody walks out, either like what is different or what have we accomplished? So let's not talk about what methods we're going to use. Let's talk about what the transformation we need to see and what do we think that's going to enable next. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like you you can you can kind of do that and say at the end of this entire journey, what have we accomplished? We might not know what the solution is. But, you know, just starting to get sharp about where we th- where what our kind of objectives are. They can be a little softer, but working back from that, And then constantly saying we have this hypothesis of how this collaboration is going to work, but we might get to the end of this one workshop and we actually need to work together on a couple of other things. But as facilitators, it means that we have to set expectations that you've asked me potentially to facilitate a workshop. We actually, I'm going to reframe it. We actually need to get you to an outcome. And a workshop Mm -hmm. could be the right way to do it, but it might not be. So let's get clear on where we're trying to go, what you're hoping, what your dream is, and then work back from there. So that's like very much a traditional facilitation, but that's why I think design sprints are really similar. And it's that same idea of we're we're gonna kind of work in this unit, but we know that there's going to be another one and another one. So we're kind of constantly thinking about where it's gonna go as we go. So I think about that as a, as a journey, and then as a facilitator, you're taking people along a journey. You can borrow tools from service design. To even to, to think about how, um, what that experience is like
0: too. I would love that you point out this idea of borrowing from service design because something we've been doing very heavily is leaning on um, learning experience design and yes. some of the yeah. concepts around learning science because mm-hmm. the epiphany that I had when I was working with Eric on this was that anybody who's attending your workshop is a learner. Yes. Um, even if you're not teaching them something because they have to learn from other coworkers around what their ideas are and internalize them. And if we don't create environments and conditions for good learning, then we're probably not going to have great workshop or great collaboration.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's actually, I think that's a great model. I, I've actually been doing a lot more learning design. I'm, I'm trying to be better about just saying like, if you want to call it a training, I'll call it a training. But it's not about <laughs> traditional training. In fact, the yeah. in terms of learning um, the latest thinking about learning, that's the same thing as you know, design thinking as a workshop. Training as a two-day session doesn't really work. Get all energized, I walk out of here, what do I do with this? I'm just gonna go back to the way I used to do it. So there's some really good um, work from the Neuroleadership Institute. I don't know if you've run across David Rock, um, but it's a neuroscience approach to learning. And what they did was they they looked at they looked at a number of different factors and sort of you know as neuroscientists do like information uptake and how does information get you know uh, encoded into the brain and how do you change habits and how do how does all that work and he pulled out a patterns within that he has this model it's called the ages model and you can if you just Google ages model and David Rock you can find it but essentially it's like looking at four different keeping in mind four different pieces when you're designing learning. So the one, the first thing is around attention. People's brains really aren't gonna uptake after about 20 minutes of experiencing the same mode of delivery. So you think about these hour long, four hour long, God help us, eight hour long training sessions where there's somebody up there delivering a deck. You've lost them after 20 minutes. They're probably not retaining a whole lot of that. So you have to think about attention and like how do you design, even in an hour, there's the delivery mode, there's a hands-on mode, there's an individual reflection mode, there's a working together, there's these different ways that you put that in for the arc from an attention perspective. Then you're also thinking about what he calls generation, and that's essentially, is this information relevant to me and how I'm going to retain it if I can basically attach it to what what I care about or what I can use. So you can do things like have people do individual reflection to like get that down. And so how do I apply what you just told me? And then there's emotions that got to be in the right state of mind. So if somebody's coming in all frazzled or sad, or you've created like there's some kind of weird tension in the room, they're less likely to uptake things. But the last one I think is most really important for us. It's spacing. Mm -hmm. So that if you want to learn, it has to be over time. So they have like tons of studies of where they all they'll do a training and they'll have one group every week, do some reinforcement about that training. And then I'll have another group do like one reinforcement over the same period of time. And the uptake for the group that had, you know, a week and a week and a week between them is, has a much higher retention than the group that maybe, you know, got it. And so it's, it's that people need to process, people need to, like, they need to have room to integrate learning, to try things out, To hear things over and over and over again. I think about that when we do like a workshop where it's like a one and done. Let's just we're going to analyze our research and we're going to walk out of here with a framework and then we're going to use that framework. And then we're like, why do the stakeholders not remember anything? (laughs) So how are we reinforcing? How do we continually come back to it? It's a lot more complicated than designing a workshop. It's a lot more, if you're an individual business, it's a lot more complicated than selling a workshop. A workshop is a discrete unit that businesses know how to buy. If you tell them what you're gonna reframe to outcomes, they're like, oh, I don't know what that means. But yeah. the cool part is if you do it right, they will pay you so much more money.
0: Yeah, well, they'll reap the benefits, right? It's interesting you say it's a lot more complicated. It's because yeah. the thing that was kind of bouncing through my head was that there's this fractal in nature to this work. Mm-hmm. When I look at designing the journey, as you refer to it, there's some transformation, some change that we want to happen Mm -hmm. and how do we get from point a to point b and then what are the touch points and you work your way backwards Mm -hmm. that's the same way we approach a workshop design you know we're we're starting off here we're going to end here and so we'll typically apply backwards design and say all right if we're ending here what happens before that where do we get to before that and Uh and bake in these assessment points uh, which is another thing that comes from the learning world because and I think that's really powerful to know if we even got where we we're planning on going.
1: Yeah. the work, Some of the work that I did at IBM was actually, we were, there's a paper about it, unfortunately, it's behind a DMI hmm. <sighs> firewall. But the, but the core of the work is that we were, we were activating uh, sellers in the sales cycle um, to be able to integrate design thinking into the sales cycle. And so we actually developed a coaching program. It was 12 weeks long. It did have like a kind of a traditional training session where they had to learn specific methods, but it had coach sessions over time. So they were coached. It also was applied to a real problem that they cared about. But one of the things it was that same thing of how do you actually, not just how as the leaders of this program assess the value of what you're doing and communicate that back to executives, but more specifically, how do you help the teams realize their own progress and help them adjust on their own where they're going. Mm. So we developed a, a we actually even has a like a name the brain behavior, I think we call it the behavior change percentage, we actually have a metric, but it, it allows people to we tell people what the core behaviors they need to engage in, and very tangible behaviors. On a regular basis, there's eight of them. And then we give them a tool that helps them assess on a regular basis as a team, how well they think they're doing. On, on part of that. So it might be a really simple one might be visual collaboration. And we will say like on a scale of zero to five, to what degree is your team actually engaging in visual collaboration? And what's your evidence for it? Mm. So over time, they can say, oh, like every four weeks, like, oh, you know, we wanted, this is what we really wanted to get better at, but we actually, when I really reflect on it, our meetings are like this. So then as coaches, we can say, well, what do you want to do differently? to actually bring more of this in. But it's very tangible and over, you, we could actually measure over the course of 12 weeks where teams had improvements. And a lot of that is just by showing them where they are and giving them the tools to evaluate and then make decisions on how to improve. That puts a responsibility for them, that makes them invested in it, all of that. But that's the measurement piece that and that's
0: the way we did it in the program yeah you know that reminds me of it, it just dawned on me as you're talking about that one thing that we're big fans of and i don't know if i've ever articulated this as like a as the why it works but we we love to start with the self-assessment piece mm-hmm. and that's a great moment well it's, it's great data for us to so know where mm-hmm. people are yeah. at and then where they need coaching but it's also helps them connect with that challenge because you're right. It's, it's always important to start with a challenge people are going to connect with that's mm-hmm. real and pertinent for them. Mm-hmm. But if they're self-assessing around that challenge, they're getting they're it's, they're unlocking new thoughts and, and able to sit with this thinking around the challenge and, and where they're at with it.
1: Yeah. So you made me think. There's a principle in relationship systems intelligence, which was that coaching methodology, and that's your job is to reveal the system to itself. Mm -hmm. So you're essentially, you're, you're, you know, a mirror to them, that for things that they can't see. And obviously, you also have like, we have an idea about what kinds of behaviors are going to help them be successful. But they may or may not, you know, realize where they are in that, or they wouldn't know it's the, the scale of learning. Again, it's like, what is it? Unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, Conscious competence and unconscious competence. So if they don't know what that, we always say that if they don't know what they don't know, you have to help them understand where they are and then show them a path to where they need to get to. That's all learning, but you can definitely do that in you know, applied uh, facilitation, design facilitation through and throughputs and um, for those for those journeys too. Yeah, I like that you brought that up because I I've been kind of like, the more I've learned about learning, the more I've also seen, been seeing those
0: connections, um, between the two. I want to just shift gears once again and bring up this, uh, black swan that we're mm-hmm. all still in the middle of, yeah. <laughs> uh, the pandemic and the cultural shift that you've seen that we've all seen around collaboration and around, maybe it was just the forcing function of everyone having to, you know, explore remote working and collaborating in new ways.
1: Yeah. So I always feel like a little guilty about talking about it this way. I mean, because this thing that we've all been going through is traumatic and tragic and there's so many things that are um, really difficult about it. And there's a huge opportunity in a black swan event like this. And for me specifically on day one, when I walked into PepsiCo, I was like, okay, I want to, I'm going to bring this collaboration journey. And I want us to be able to to in, integrate facilitation and visual collaboration and this kind of radical collaboration into everything that we do. And you have to meet an organization where it is. And they there's a lot of collaboration. They're very skilled in that, but very like physical, workshop based, paper based, and so that that's kind of where the, the culture was. And it's like okay, I found. I was like, we're gonna figure out how to bring Mural in here. I found the pilot group and the IT. I was like putting together things. But when I would share the information with people, they were like, but, but the paper's working for us, which it was, but about three weeks. So I knew I wasn't gonna get any traction on it, but about three, for a long time, but for about three weeks um, before the lockdown, I, I could see what was happening in Europe. I could see it coming, what they were saying in California. And I was like, guys, we've got rooms full of paper and something, we're gonna lose all this stuff and we're we're gonna probably have no warning for it. So that I actually started three weeks before the lockdown really starting to push for the tools to, to try to get us ready for it. There was still this like trying to learn it, but but the like fast forward to a year later, this collaboration as more of a journey, as as like just part of how we work is very much part of the culture now. And we have Folks who I've heard say, like, I will never go back to that project room based boards moving around way of working because I didn't realize how cumbersome it was yeah. um, and how impermanent it was and how, you know, all of that stuff. So there's been this real fundamental change and the, the you know COVID and the lockdowns just accelerated it. So there's this interesting, it's like a weird moment of we've got people talking about how we're going to go back. To the way things were, and so a lot. There's a lot of people who have that mental model. How do we go back? When it's really not about going back, it's about going forward. So we are where we are now. Um, what is it going to look like next? And I think that's just a really exciting, a really exciting place of what what is the next kind of collaboration. Okay, we're using visual collaboration tools or Google Docs and things like that. But what what you know? How do we then start to bridge that? Being in person has a certain kind of feeling to it, which is very hard to replace. But what could other models look like? I think there's just an enormous possibility. I don't know answers to that stuff, so that's why i me- I was excited about. I feel like it's been a really successful year for the team in terms of because now we're like the way we integrate cross-functional folks into it. There's so much like traction that's happening not just inside the design center but throughout PepsiCo. Of like, wow we're able to work more efficiently. We're able to like really bring different folks to the table and I I do think that's a permanent change. And in fact, PepsiCo itself has recognized that the way that we're not really going back. It's it's called a, the program's called um Work That Works. And it's mm. it's about it's about like acknowledging all the successes that we've had and now let's figure out how to continue to do that in a more sustainable long term kind of a way. So I think I think there's just there's a lot of um, possibility in that, but we just nobody knows what that really mm. is gonna look
0: like. Yeah, I mean, we're clearly gonna go into a, a realm of experimentation. Uh, yeah. I think some folks will be a little more intentional about their experiments and some folks are just gonna leap straight in and, yeah. and make some unfortunate discoveries. And... Yeah.
1: There's gonna be people who are super resistant too. Yeah. Who are just like, please, please, please. It was so much more comfortable before and I've had a miserable year, and how can we go back to that? And I think it's just gonna be hard for those folks. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I think there might be space. I mean, there's definitely gonna be, you know, there's definitely folks that don't have the the luxury of having a great office at home. Uh-huh. They're still working yes. from the kitchen table. Yes. I think they're going to maybe have spaces that are more adequately equipped. Mm-hmm. But I think that essentially, my feeling is what's gonna happen is gonna democratize access a little more for mm-hmm. folks that don't have nice internet for whatever reason or a space in their home. yeah, but they're just going to get the experience we've had for the for the for the last year, right? because yeah. they're gonna start tapping in in a more efficient way. Yeah. we also talked a little bit in the pre-show chat about, you remember like, study groups and stuff where we all had our laptops open or you know meetings where we're together but we're still tapping into the systems whether it be mural or whatever Mm -hmm. and and kind of working away even though we're in the same room together
1: yeah so i i um i like my shout out to mural i worked with their customer experience folks uh, when i was at ibm and and they were actually pushing me towards thinking in terms of the workshop just like you described it that it's not just about something you do remotely, but how can you integrate the tools and to do all kinds of things in an in-person setting. So it could be, you know, you're you could you could imagine teaching, let's say teaching, a hands-on session where everybody's actually working inside the mural, but you're also able to like let's have a conversation, um, let's have a conversation while we're doing it. Or, you know, people can raise their hands and you know, you can have small breakout groups and they can see each other working. And so it, it's still the tool is maybe enabling the conversation or enabling them to make something. And they might even just turn around and draw something on a whiteboard and photograph that if it makes sense and put it back in. And now you've got something that's persistent. Because I do think, I mean, we were talking about like whether hybrid is really a thing. Like, is that such a thing? I do think like we're so we're planning. I don't know how it's going to work, but there's you know, we'll be in the office X number of days for intentional reasons, collaboration and culture and things like that. So being like being intentional about it, but it's never going to be that permanence. Mm. It's just it's never going to be that. I just wanted to actually, I, one thing I missed when we were talking. I just wanted to just touch on a little bit is your your point about uh, unequal work environments or like so people mm-hmm. or a, a diversity of work environments. So you've got people. I'm I'm lucky enough to have a really great space to work in. So I quite love my space. But I do, I have most of my colleagues, a lot of them are in like 800 square foot apartments in New York City with two kids. And so, and another partner that works. So they're just all like trying to manage that and the complexity of that going back. Um, I think we have to figure out how to take that into consideration too. I don't know what that looks like either, but.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's what I'm most excited about this transition because people talk about back to work and back to normal or whatever. I think that ideally we lean on everything we learned, but let's support the folks that have been a little disadvantaged Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. help them get set up. And, but let's not swing the pendulum into a territory. That's like, you know, not helpful because, you know, we, we all remember what it's like to be the one person who was sick at home during the big all hands and, you know, they got the polycom sitting on the conference room table and you can't hear a thing or, and it's a horrible experience. We don't want to recreate that. And and an omnidirectional microphone in a room full of people is not, it's not
1: connection. I'm just laughing because I remember with some of that polycom (laughs) stuff of literally (laughs) a group having a meeting and then walking out of the room and not hanging up the phone. Like, you just like don't even, Oh, is there you know, being like, "Oh, you'll hear the voice, guys. Are we done?" And you're like, "Oh my God, we forgot that person completely."
0: Yeah, you forgot them so much that you didn't even hang up yeah. the phone. It it also reminds me of meetings that we work where where the company would leave their computer connected to to the monitor, and so you're in the next meeting, and they're they're checking their Facebook, and you're like, "There's their Facebook on the monitor."
1: <laughs> That's a a little. <laughs> That's true. <really. laughs> Yeah, it's hilarious.
0: <laughs> Pay attention to your yeah. tech. It's important. Yeah. Um, excellent. Well, I, you know, I think that's kind of getting us to a nice place to wrap. It's been fun chatting. And I just want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought.
1: So here's what I'd leave you all with. I have a website called facilitating.design. And that's where I'm compiling a lot of this work around collaboration journeys. What does it mean to be a collaboration designer? And what are tools that you can use to do that? So if you want to visit that, I have a sort of a simple tool that you can use to help you start to plan a journey through a collaboration.
0: Please do check out facilitating.design. And Sarah, I want to give you a big thank you for joining the show today. It was a pleasure chatting.
1: It was lovely. I was very energized and I uh, look forward to more conversations.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together.
1: VoltageControl.com.